This morning we are finishing uh, the last of ten messages on worship. And we're going to be thinking about the fruitfulness of worship. What, what sort of comes out or what's produced from this life of worship we've been considering. If you want to turn to Colossians 1, that will be our, our primary text this morning. Earlier this week, the day that we got that big snowfall overnight, we woke up and found out that school had been canceled, and so I went into the kitchen to make a big breakfast for the kids. And in addition to you know, warm eggs and toast, tea and coffee on the table, we put out this big bowl of fresh orange slices. And I don't know if, if that's a custom in your family, but when it's cold outside, the weather's kind of turning Nasty. There's something wonderful about the smell and the taste of citrus fruit. Right? If, even if we're not snowbirds going to Florida, right, a little piece of Florida can come to us. And when I eat an orange sometimes in the morning, in the winter, it's, it's almost like I'm tasting the, the warmth and the sunshine of the climate that they were grown in. And apparently that is, is at least in part what's taking place. Botanists say that in many ways that the soil and the climate that a piece of fruit is grown in is discernible in its aroma and in the taste of that piece of fruit. Citrus fruit is one example of that, but maybe the, the most complex and, and best example is the, the tomato plant, the tomato fruit. Apparently, University of Florida researchers have been studying tomatoes and trying to understand what makes one tomato taste better than another. And they've, they've identified 3,000 different components or variables that are expressed in the, the taste or the aroma of a single tomato plant. And they've, they've sort of gone through all that research, and they say chief among the, the things that influence the taste of a tomato are the place it's grown and the method of production, how it's grown. So where and how a tomato is grown dramatically affect the quality and taste. Typically speaking, they find that compost-rich soil produces better-tasting tomatoes. Tomatoes that are grown in sandy soils like Florida or uh, in hydroponic solutions often look good, but they leave something to be desired in terms of taste. Right? But, but rich soils, you know, growing them in your backyard and gardens, tends to produce these, these wonderful flavors and aromas. And while that, that seems like a truth that should be fairly obvious to anyone who's ever planted a garden, right? it's, it's one that often gets overlooked or set aside in agribusiness, where they're trying to, to produce as much as they can with as few resources as possible. Right? There's sort of a temptation to grow more with less. But these studies keep indicating that to get the best fruit, right? the when, the how, and the where of, of those conditions matter. Of course, growing fruit and, and these, these ideas of harvest are also metaphors that show up in and, in and out of both the Old and New Testaments. From the book of Genesis to the Psalms, to Isaiah, to the 
the preaching of Jesus and St. Paul. Right? When the, the Bible speaks in the, the metaphor of fruitfulness, it's describing something that takes place in us, right? in the, the lives of, of God's people, in the life of our worship. And fruitfulness is always described in the scriptures as the response of, of what God is doing, what God is expressing, what God is sowing into us, and, and it's our response to that, to the grace God gives. Right? It's, it's the expression of a deep and abiding relationship in him that we then become fruitful. I want you to think for a moment about Christian friends or family members you know. And what kind of fruit or fruitfulness do you notice growing in them? Or maybe there's a lack of fruitfulness you you notice uh, in their lives. But I I wonder what then conditions, what, what is it about who they are and what they do and how they live and how they walk with the Lord that, that causes that fruit to come forth? What are the conditions present in their lives? Just like oranges or tomatoes, right, the quality of the fruit that grows in us greatly depends on how deeply we've been rooted and established in the love God has for us. I would say, too, that the the sort of flavor and the aroma of our fruit is often a measure of how richly we have tasted of the gospel's sweetness ourselves. We we draw those resources, we draw that, that richness up and into the fruitfulness of the lives we live. And so this morning I want to look at the opening paragraphs of one of Paul's letters, And in the the first chapter of Colossians, Paul prays that uniquely Christian, uniquely sort of Christ-shaped and and aromatic and and, and Christ-scented fruit would would bear forth in this little church in the city of Colossae. And as he prays for that church, I want us to sort of notice two things in this passage— First of all, how Paul describes the fruitfulness of the gospel itself, right? The the soil, the conditions of the gospel are are inherently fruitful, Paul says. But then as his prayer continues, we'll notice that that fruitfulness is is drawn up and into the lives of us, right? The the worshipers of God. It's it's meant to have expression in, in our individual lives and in our corporate worship as God's people. So if you turn with me, we'll be looking at Colossians 1, verses 3 and following. Let me pray for us as we consider God's word. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. You say that it goes forth from you in the heavens and it comes to the earth and it will accomplish your purpose. It does not return void. Lord, I pray that we would be found attentive. Lord, just uh, tender soil for your word and your spirit's work to take root in this morning. May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Colossians 
chapter 1, verse 3. Paul prays, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Paul begins his letter to this church in Colossae with with a prayer, and it's a prayer of gratitude because Paul has been given some remarkably good news. From what we understand, Paul has never actually visited or or spent time with uh, this community in Colossae. But one of his colleagues and friends named Epaphras has, has gone back to this hometown where he's from and has shared the message of who Jesus Christ is, and a church has taken root in this small city. And there are reports then coming back to Paul, probably in Ephesus at this time, that these young Christians in Colossae have have moved quickly from a place of spiritual infancy, and they are now beginning to express some signs of maturity in matters of the Spirit. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul remarks on two of these indications of of growth and maturity. He says that he hears from Epaphras that they are a people of growing faith and that they are expressing that faith in tangible love for all of God's people. These new believers then are growing in head and in heart They're growing in belief, but also in outward action, in faith, and in love. These are the the first signs of fruitfulness in that city. But then, beginning in verse 5, Paul wants to trace the roots of that growth. Where have these things come from? He wants to trace them back to a particular source. In verse 5, he says, this faith and hope are springing forth from the hope stored, sorry, faith and love are springing forth from the hope stored up for you in heaven. I love the, the mixture of images and metaphors Paul uses in these next few verses. He says, firstly, God in, in his love and in compassion and kindness, he has stored up in heaven hope for his people. And he's, he's set it aside, he's stored it up like a treasure. That's sort of the language being used here. In heaven we have this great treasure from which our faith and our hope come forth. And I imagine, given the 
the rest of Colossians 1 and 2, where Paul quickly takes this prayer, the, the hope in heaven he's imagining is the, the resurrected and ascended Jesus, right? who is there in the heavenly realms, and who is preparing a place for us, as Jesus says in John. Jesus in the heavenly realms who's interceding before the Father for us. And we have this great heavenly hope stored up, Paul says. But the language here is this idea that, that it's stored up in heaven, but it can't be contained there. It's, it's springing forth, and it's, it's causing things to happen here on earth, in the present, in the here and now. That hope we have moves downstream from heaven to earth. Paul says at the end of verse 5, it shows up in Colossae in the form of this true message of the gospel which has come to you. It's the hope of heaven moving to a place that we can, can respond to it. The gospel. And again, that is a term that we hear often in the scriptures, but it's helpful sometimes to stop and ask, well, what, what is that? What is the gospel? What is this good news Paul is speaking about? And it's difficult, I think, to boil that down into one or two sentences. But broadly, the gospel is, is the message that through the life, through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus, God is recovering what had been lost. God is recreating all of, of creation, and in particular, beginning with his people, right, with humanity. Recovering our hearts, recovering our worship, recovering, you know, this, this sense of new creation in his people. And Jesus is, is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the, the agent of that redemption. And Jesus is the one then that brings the hope of heaven to our front door, right, in, in the form of his gospel, his reign, his good news that he's proclaimed. Paul says in verse 6, this gospel has come to you. It's found you where you are. But then Paul shifts his metaphor. And he shifts away from this emphasis on the treasure that is in heaven. And he wants to talk about what happens when that treasure collides sort of with earthly soil. What takes place when this gospel comes from heaven to earth. And in verses 7 and following, 6, 7, and 8, 9... He says, when the gospel comes to the earth, it's incredibly fertile. As Epaphras goes to Colossae and begins to preach the gospel there, people are responding. As Peter goes to Antioch and preaches the gospel, there is a fruitfulness. As James continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, Paul says, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's growing. There's life in it throughout the whole world. The seed and the soil of the gospel is fruitful, Paul says. It will bear fruit. Sometimes with our help, sometimes in spite of our help. And one of the the most powerful images, I think, in, in recent centuries of this gospel fruitfulness kind of comes through some unlikely circumstances. Early in the 20th century, in 1910, there were about 1,200 uh, representatives of Christian mission, 
right? all the great mission boards of the early 20th century, all the Protestant denominations in Europe and in North America. In 1910, they all assembled in Edinburgh, Scotland, for uh, what, was, what was called the World Missionary Conference. And the focus of that particular gathering was was for all these movers and shakers of the the Western world to strategize about how they would evangelize the world in their generation, how they would take the gospel out and cause it to be fruitful. And so all these different denominations and missions collaborated, and they resolved to share their resources, to share funds, and to coordinate their efforts to reach the non-Western world with the message of the gospel. There was this comprehensive vision, probably in a way that had never happened before. But the vast majority of those strategies and plans fell flat less than five years later. Because that was 1910 and 1914, World War I broke out. And all the the nations that that composed this this conference were now at war with each other. Right? Their, their denominations were now separated and sort of torn apart. And as the 20th century continued, you know, from World War I into World War II and then the Cold War, right, the, the North American and European church would be divided and separated from itself. And the church in Europe quickly fell into decline. And you might say, well, well, how in the world is that an evidence of the gospel's fruitfulness? Well, incredibly, at the same time as that story was unfolding, the evangelization of a a global church exploded in the 20th century. All those plans that they had laid out and assumed that they would be the, the messengers to carry forth most of them actually took place in the 20th century, but they, they came through incredible indigenous movements of God in places like Africa and South America and Asia. So that today, at the start of the 21st century, 100 years later, the gospel is most robust, it's most quickly growing and fruitful, not in the United Kingdom or in Scotland or in the United States, but in the global south. Right, in the non-Western world is, is where we see this fruit coming forth. The leaders of the church are coming from those nations. As Paul says here in verse 6, the gospel of Jesus is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. And I think that's because regardless of the messenger, the gospel itself has power. It's, it has fruitfulness that's sort of coded into its DNA. And that when we both hear and understand the goodness of God, Paul says, when we hear and understand the grace of God, the rescue of God in Jesus, it's like sowing a field with the best possible seed and then waiting and and watching for a harvest to follow. And beginning in verse 9, Paul picks up that analogy of of this harvest, this fruitfulness that, that comes further along after the gospel is preached. Look with me at verses 9 through 12. Paul says, For this reason, because of the fruitfulness of the gospel, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. 
through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. These few verses are are a continuation of Paul's prayer. Apparently Paul spends a lot of his life praying because back in verse 3 we see he begins by by praying this prayer of gratitude and awe at the, the fruitfulness of the gospel, right? This incredible thing God has done. That's how he begins his prayer, with gratitude. That wherever the gospel goes, it it seems to bring forth transformation and conversion. But then beginning again here in verse 9, he continues to pray and he says, Because of this, for this reason, because of, of the gospel's great fruitfulness, I have not stopped praying for you, for this particular community in Colossae. Paul prays because he knows how deep and rich the power of Jesus Christ is. And he prays that 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 fruitfulness will not just flourish for a moment, not just in a a brief flash of conversion growth. But in verses 9 through 12, he, he prays that that growth will spread out. He says, I'm praying this gospel will fill you, that it will inform you, that it will grow in you that it will cause rejoicing in you. The idea here is is maturity. A a tree that begins to branch out and and begins to bear fruit of its own, Paul says in verse 10. And Paul prays for for specific, particular kinds of fruitfulness to, to bear forth in our lives. I want you to close your eyes just for a few moments And imagine God working these things in you and in your families. And imagine God cultivating his his work in you, filling you with his wisdom and knowledge, Paul prays. So that you might know more clearly and more fully what he's made you to do. Paul prays, imagine knowing God more personally, more intimately, and the trust that comes with that sense that God knows you, he sees you, he walks with you. Paul prays for God's hand to be more visibly at work in us, in the work we do every day, that it might be fruitful, that we might know God is in it. And he also prays that God would work in us that we would have endurance and power to walk even through sacrifice and setbacks. Finally, he prays that we would know deep within us the joy that we belong to Jesus, that we have an inheritance with him, that we are his people. All of these things Paul prays and he asks for as fruits of the gospel to grow up in us as worshipers. You can open your eyes if you've had them closed. We may want to be fruitful in this way. We may want God to work in us. We may even take the next step to pray for God to help us. 
But the reality is that for the gospel to flourish and, and to do this further work of fruitfulness, it needs space, right? It needs support. It needs nurture. It may even require that we embrace new systems and habits and ways of living. And so various writers throughout the the history of the church have spoken about the need for spiritual disciplines in our lives. Now, discipline is a word that doesn't sound particularly appealing to most of us, right? It's It's difficult, it sounds painful, perhaps. Or maybe it sounds like we're trying to earn God's favor in some way. All of of God's growth in us is a gift, right? Everything that happens in, in this sense of fruitfulness is a response to God's mercy. We don't earn our way to spiritual maturity. But in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster describes spiritual disciplines in this way found this, this, this definition really helpful. He says, spiritual disciplines are choices that allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. And disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Right? But they're specific, they're commitments, they're choices we make with God's help. And sometimes these spiritual disciplines have been envisioned like a trellis. I'm not much of a gardener, but you know that if you want to grow particular vines, flowers like clematis or morning glory, right, you put a trellis just above that seedling in the ground. And of course, the trellis itself has no power. It has no life of its own. Right? It's, it's lifeless. We don't admire the beauty of the trellis, typically. What we're after is is the thing that grows up, right? The the living thing that that follows the trellis skyward, that organic growth. But, But it wouldn't happen if the trellis wasn't there, right? If that support and structure wasn't present. Dallas Willard, again, has likened the the spiritual disciplines to this structure and support that enables the the gospel to flourish in us. And he's also written an excellent book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And in it, he lists the activities of Jesus himself. He says if we want to be like Jesus, we should probably choose to spend our time the way Jesus did. We should practice the disciplines that he practiced. He says things like silence, solitude, Prayer, simple and sacrificial living, intense study and meditation on God's word and God's ways, and the choice of service to others. These are all things we see reflected in Jesus' life in the Gospels. And if we would choose to engage, if we would choose to make space in our lives as worshipers to do the same things, right, then, then, then God would have that space to to begin to work on us and change us. These past ten weeks, we've talked about worship from a whole host of different angles, and we've also suggested some particular practices that might aid us in that worship. Things like Sabbath rest, things like taking time to notice the beauty of God and his creation, learning to slow down our everyday lives, in order to do them 
and to, to walk with Jesus instead of just working for him. Right? Setting aside regular times of prayer. Finding ways even in our lament and in our trials to cry out to God as worship. These are all disciplines and practices we could, could take hold of. And if you wanted to do any, any further reading or thinking on that, let me recommend three books to you that I think are really accessible in the spiritual disciplines. The, the first is Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Disciplines. Second is Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. And the third is a book called God in My Everything by Ken Shigematsu. He's our pastor in Vancouver many years ago. And actually, I think all three of these are downstairs in the church library. Some of them are sitting out on the shelf there for you to check out this morning. But as we conclude this series on worship, I want to offer you a challenge to consider what, what that trellis in your life might look like. Right? What choices or habits or appointments are you willing to make in order to invite Jesus to, to grow that sense of the gospel's fruitfulness in you? to grow your capacity for worship. I challenge you to to pray about that intentionally, maybe to talk about it with your family or friends over lunch today, maybe even risk putting a few of those things on on your calendar in the upcoming weeks. My prayer is that in the the grace and kindness of God, we might put our roots down into the fruitfulness of who Jesus is. Just close with this last verse from John 15. Right, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me pray for us. Lord, we long to be creatures of worship people who know you and find our life in you. We confess we need help, we need support. We need new ways of of coming to you and abiding in you. Thank you that you are strong and mighty to do that. You are gentle and compassionate. And that your great desire is that we might know life, life to the full. In Jesus, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.